Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Previously on Mentally Yours... Well, I've definitely noticed that people are a lot more comfortable with talking about it, a lot more comfortable about expressing perhaps the difficulties that they're having or the challenges they're having. Um, so I've noticed that people are, especially younger people, actually, a lot better at actually saying, you know, they may have an issue or there might be something that they're not really coping with. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Uh, focus on your mental health, you surely won't regret. It's mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Hi everyone, welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. Check out our other brilliant podcast, it's called Good Sex, Bad Sex, and it's about sex. My name's Yvette, and I'm here on my own this week. I'm going to be chatting to Tom Pollock. He's a brilliant author and he's got a new book out at the moment. It's called White Rabbit, Red Wolf. It's a fantastic novel. It's a thriller and the central character has mental health issues. So I'm going to be chatting to him about why he decided to write the book, his own background in terms of mental health issues and the book in general. Tom, thank you so much for coming on Mentally Yours. Oh, thank you for having me. So we're here to chat about your new book, White Rabbit, Red Wolf, mm-hmm. which I absolutely love. Oh. I'm not just, not just saying that. Thank you. It's about a young guy, a 17-year-old. Mm-hmm. I mean, the premise of it is he suffers from panic attacks, he self-harms, um, but it's also a thriller mm-hmm. and a murder mystery. But why did you decide you wanted to have um, a main character with those particular issues? So Pete's panic disorder is based largely on my own experience with uh, panic attacks. I've, I've sort of diagnosed with uh, clinical depression and anxiety in my mid-teens. So I've lived with them for about 20 years now. 
I've always felt pretty strongly um, that I wanted to kind of get that into about that and I want to get that into fiction. I also, there's a couple of things I was looking to do with it. One was I wanted to write a uh, a book where the main character was mentally ill without making their mental illness the subject of the plot mm-hmm. or the central subject of the plot. Uh, two reasons for that. Um, it was kind of one main reason for that really, but that kind of comes in two parts, which is that one of the things your brain can tell you especially if you have when you have depression uh, or, or anxiety is that you you are your mental illness that's your life like it fills up your subjective experience of yourself and it kind of um you know it tells you that this is all you are this is all you've ever been and this is all you can be but that story it tells you is a lie right like that millions of people live with these conditions uh, every day and they are and continue to be and can achieve like huge a massive wide range of things Mm. um and so i wanted and when i see a lot of stories around uh you know stuff like a a beautiful mind or like a lot of kind of other other stories about uh people who have mental illnesses and 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 like the whole thing is about that Mm -hmm. and so i wanted to write a story about where you had a character who was mentally ill and where that mental illness was faithfully rendered but where also but he was also funny and resourceful and loving and loved. And yeah, he kind of messes up in relatable human ways, but he is ultimately heroic, right? Because there's no contradiction between um, being mentally ill and being a hero. Mm. Uh, so that's one thing. And then the other thing was that I, I, I was wanting to put that experience on the page to, so I could give the reader a set who maybe hadn't experienced that kind of thing, a sense of what that's like. Mm. Cause I, I I've, I've written quite a lot of nonfiction about uh, sort of my experiences with, 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 with anxiety disorders, with my eating disorder as part of my role as a, as an ambassador for this organization called talk life. And one of the things that I noticed is that people tend to respond to nonfiction about mental health quite intellectually. So they're quite like kind of arm's length. They're like, or respond with a lot of sympathy, but not maybe not that much empathy empathy whereas with fiction like the mode of engagement is very different Um, people approach fiction wanting to feel what the characters feel wanting to see through the character's eyes uh, and get into a character's head that's sort of what stories are for Uh, and so um, I wanted I felt like like a, a novel was like a really good medium for that. I love the fact that you are showing those relationships. He's very close to his mm-hmm. mum and well, particularly close to his sister as well, isn't mm-hmm. he? And I really loved the depiction of him and his sister. Can you um, chat a bit yeah, about that? Yeah, sure. So Pete and uh, Annabelle Bell um, are, are twins and they have very kind of quite a complimentary relationship. So Pete's uh, very anxious, but he's also very funny. He's quite, uh, I guess, almost like sarcastic, but he's quite like um, uh, sharp and he's, 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 a, he's a brilliant mathematician. Uh, Belle is uh, quite aggressive, <laughs> quite she's she's very physically capable mm-hmm. um she's very very protective of him um and so they um they make like they make a really good team like they they and they've grown up together mm-hmm. um and they kind of like you know they 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 kind of banter in the way that um brothers and sisters do so uh bell's eight minutes older um and so she she constantly refers to pete as little bro which annoys the hell out of him mm. and he's like you're only eight minutes older and she's does, like doesn't matter it was a race for the exit and i won um and so they have that kind of going on but then uh, and they kind of needle each other but when uh there's kind of one of the very early scenes one of the they're like the school bullies kind of kind of get a sense of kind of weakness they kind of smell weakness around pete and they kind of try to like kind of intimidate him into into giving up his rucksack um 
you you, you catch up to them when when his uh, his his mum's been called called in to pick them up from school because. Uh, uh, Bell pinned one of the billies down and basically fed uh, two earthworms into his nose that then exited through his lower left sinus. Um, yeah. So she's got she's she's that she's she's kind of like the action hero one and he's kind of the thinky one. Um, and and then they make quite a good team. That's what I'm finding interesting so far as I'm going into it at the start of the book. Um, I do really like the fact that you've got that depiction of people with mental health issues and their family because again I don't think you see that a huge amount in films. And in sort of TV and even books, a lot of the time it is almost like these sort of tragic figures or these people sort of overcoming things sort of on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's really good to see that sort of relationship. I think it's one of the things that I wanted to do is just like everyone, like everyone has mental health the same way that everyone has like cardiac health, right, or renal health. Um, and it's just like it's it's a, a suite of chronic health conditions, mm. um, and we all like live with them like it makes you feel alone right like it makes you feel like the people around you like they can't possibly love you because you're so much work and you're like you're not you're not fun and like you're just lying in bed for like the 16th day in a row like um and and having an opportunity to kind of like objectively show that like this character has this really severe condition and yet like his relationship with his mum and his sister and his best friend Ingrid are like like huge sources of like joy for all of them uh and reinforcement for all of them like it is a sign that like again being mentally ill and being loved and being loving are not contradictory in the way that sometimes it can feel like they are yeah absolutely um could we possibly go back to when you were chatting a bit about your own Mm -hmm. experiences of um sure mental illness Mm -hmm. um you mentioned a couple of things so um panic attacks but you also mentioned um an eating disorder yep when did you first sort of start experiencing that it's interesting so the story of my bulimia because that's what it is uh i guess it starts when i was about 14 and there were various things going on some of them were um sort of normal teenage stuff like kind of you know gcse anxiety uh some of it was stuff that is normal teenage stuff probably shouldn't be because i was getting bullied at school and some of it was kind of more specific to me like my mum had had just come down with cancer and simple physical kind of pleasure of eating was the only thing for a while that sort of eased the tension so i just started to eat a lot the more i ate the more i started to worry that i couldn't control it and then that in turn created more anxiety that I needed to assuage by eating more and faster. And then at some point you realize that you can't, you're no longer in control of how much you're eating at that point you're binge eating. Um, and um, it's it's a quite a strange thing because the fear you can't control it is the thing that makes you do it more. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, and it's quite, it, it's, it's quite weird. It's like, it's, they get this kind of glassy sense that somebody else is driving and it's not really to do with whatever food it is you're eating. Like I found uh, later on when I got to university that I could basically binge on anything. I could binge on carrots. I could binge on celery. I could binge on like dry handfuls of pasta, mm-hmm. right? Like that'll just slice your gums up when you eat them because it's not cooked. But whatever, like if it's even vaguely edible, like, and you, when you go into a binge, you'll just eat it and eat it and eat it. Um, I was trying to, I, I actually learned to purge more or less by accident. <laughs> um, so I, um, again, like I was getting bullied at school. I was trying to avoid the bullies. So I like faked being ill. But mostly I started to purge through exercise because um, that felt like a more 
kind of serious reassertion of control over myself and of my body. So I'd get to the point where I wouldn't let myself go to bed until I'd done 200 push-ups and 300 push-ups and 400 push-ups and 500 push-ups. Well, like I said, I got to university. I started to binge on quote-unquote healthier things, but I guess was still doing the exercise for the stuff I was eating. Like the calories in it wasn't enough to kind of sustain the difference in like calorie deficits. So I, I just started, I lost a lot of weight. Um, and then I would I get to a place kind of where I would, you know, just kind of exercise obsessively. And again, it comes back to this whole, whole idea that you, you don't have any control of yourself and you don't have any control of yourself because you fear that you won't have any control of yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's turtles all the way down. But I wasn't diagnosed until I was 24. Mm-hmm. So I was getting panic attacks at work and I took, went to go see a, my doctor and my doctor referred me to a psychiatrist. And my psychiatrist was like, uh-huh, okay, so your panic attacks are all fairly like, interesting and we can do some stuff about that. Now let's talk about your bulimia. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> because I wasn't regularly throwing up. And also like it just wasn't in my head, like the front of my head is like a thing that could be wrong with men right like it's kind of like the conventional um i think the power of the stereotype is really strong with eating disorders and people just kind of mentally associate them with teenage girls and so because of that um i just hadn't thought of it but it clicked in a way and it made a lot of sense and i was like oh oh no wait yeah that does make sense and then so you know then you you're taught various kind of cbt type techniques to kind of help handle it and i now schedule my exercise quite um, rigidly so I will do it but I won't do more than that and mm. then that in a weird way like knowing that I don't have that to kind of resort to has made it easier to control the eating and I still do I do still sometimes binge but what I am trying to get better at is being sufficiently kind to myself that when I do binge it doesn't result in the kind of spiral that leads me to binge again and then purge again and then binge again and then purge again like, do you know what I mean like we have this constantly aggressively accelerating pendulum between the two extremes um it's a chronic health condition right like it's like diabetes Mm. you have good days you have bad days there are things you there are lifestyle things you can do that will make it easier to cope with Mm. um uh there are meds that you can take that make it easier to cope with uh and you do all of that stuff and that will kind of help kind of even out the sine wave between good days and bad days but uh there's no cure Mm. right like there's just ways in which there are just things that you can do to live with it better but that doesn't mean you can't live with it well and my favorite kind of uh comparative to this is uh, a guy called henry slade who's an english rugby player uh, and he's like the set he was a start he's a starting center for england in south africa right now but he's also type 1 diabetic and like you would think it'd be really hard to be a professional rugby player and type 1 diabetic because it affects your energy levels it affects your weight like it's like this huge huge thing but he you know he manages it as best he can and he's like and he's still diabetic it's not that he's like being cured of diabetes but he is a a world-class outside center when they finally found his right position um and i just said like there's no reason why me being ill in the way that i think i am still ill and i probably always will be maybe uh needs to stop me from doing anything that other people do but it also doesn't mean it's not there and Mm -hmm. it's just it's just one of the facts of my life that i have to contend with on a day-to-day basis i hope you don't mind me asking this Mm -hmm. i'm fairly aware that with eating disorders most of it's about control and you've Mm -hmm. already sort of talked about that element of it. But do you think that there's any sort of element in terms of the way that society now places a lot of pressure on men to look a certain way or do you think that that's completely separate? No, I think it's connected, but I don't think it's the root cause. Mm. So for me, how I look is part of it, but it's, it's a symbol of my level of control over myself. So if I manage to look a certain way, it is because I've 
achieved a certain level of control over myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that control is the goal, right? Like that control is what makes me feel safe. That control is what makes me feel like centered. Um, and so when I look in the mirror and I see something that diverges too far from that standard, it disturbs me because it's an indication that I've lost, that I've let myself go. That's my personal experience. I've heard from other guys um, that the media putting pressure to on men to look a certain way. You know, basically, like these, you see these guys with like their six packs that look like cathedral vaults, right? Like, and you're surrounded by that all the time. I think that plays into it. Mm. I think not so much necessarily the particular standard, but the just the ubiquity. The way that you can't go anywhere without seeing it all the time. Yeah. Like you can't go on Instagram, you can't go on Twitter, you can't walk past a newsstand, you can't go anywhere. Because I think with any um, mental illness that has a, a, a component of, of obsession, um, it, it, the, in, some, some aspect of it always being there to remind you, it being inescapable, um, is, I mean, it's always going to be there in your mind. And then that actually plays into one of the things that makes it really hard to stop a binge. Mm. Um, because one of the things that the thoughts loops that goes on in my mind when I'm binging is that I can choose now to not eat that, but the food will still be there. And then I'll have to choose again the next second. Mm. And then the second after that, and the second after that, and the second after that. And I can't make a binding decision which will make that temptation go away. So I have to just get out of the way and eat it. And that's similar with the kind of the the feeling with the kind of the magazine covers and, and kind of photoshopped Instagram pictures and whatever else is that it's always there. In terms of recovery mm-hmm. um you mentioned cbt earlier yep. is that something that you're still um working on what and if so sort of what sort of things do you do or what things have you found helpful so cbt is interesting so it's like cbt is like basically just a bunch of tricks and kind of knacks and stuff that you get kind of get taught that you then do yourself so there's lots of things like a lot of them kind of revolve around just trying to be a bit kinder to yourself, like because a lot of well myself. But one of the one of the um, one of my favorite one of the ones that works for me is just trying to basically. I think my, my therapist called it decentering, but basically it means like imagine that take the self talk that's going around in your head right now and telling you that you're whatever that you're fat that you're lazy that you're worthless whatever else is, and then stack the evidence up against it. That sometimes for some people like stacking the evidence up against it is enough to disprove it. It's not for me. But for the next step for me is, all right, now imagine that you're saying that to somebody else that you love. Yeah. Right. So like saying it to, to my wife or my, it's like a, one of my friends. Like, how do you sound, right? Do you sound right? Do you sound just? Do you sound sensible? Or do you sound like a massive bully? Mm. Uh, like a giant dickhead. Because <laughs> if you're being, a, if you sound like a giant dickhead, it's because you're being a giant dickhead to yourself right now. And yeah. like that, that I find helpful. There are practical things as well, like just physical dislocation, right? Like just move, like there's, there's, there's a couple of different coping mechanisms that I literally transpose straight into the book, right? Like one of them is just get moving, mm. right? Just get out of wherever it is you're, you are right now. Get outside, go for a walk. I try not to go for a run because that can like kind of accelerate into like a, like a, an exercise thing, but just like get out, just get some air. I, I, find, I, I can find social media very, very triggering. Um, just like a lot of, I find like a, there's a lot of pressure around it. So just like get away from all your computers, get away from your phone, get away from TV and just, just walk. Uh, that's helpful. So the diary thing's quite good as well. So um, this is more for the kind of depression side of things, but yeah. it's kind of like, I tend, the way I tend to describe sort of mental 
kind of mental illnesses it's like it's like a looking at a mountain on a cloudy day right like you have like different outcrops of rock poking through the cloud and you give different names to all of them but they're all part of the same bit of rock and so uh for me like the thing the thing that's helpful for me with depression is that i, I tend to find with depression the thing that is most acute about it is the um the way it screws around with your your perception of time so it tries to convince you that the way you feel now is the way you've always felt and therefore the way you always will feel and so taking the effort to like write down on my phone uh or in my diary or wherever it is like when i'm having a good day mm. um and like having that as being evidence that this this blip while you are undoubtedly feeling it is not permanent and there have been good times in the past and there will be good times again in the future and also recording and then dating it and dating times you're feeling bad because it's important not just to be able to look back at a past which was good and now you feel bad but you want to be able to see the sine wave right you want to be able to see the ups and then the downs and then the ups again and then the downs again so you know that there's a good time coming and you can wait and, and then that gives you some encouragement to wait it out um especially if uh suicide ideation is a big part of your depression which is with mine okay so that's a very difficult thing to talk about but i'd like us to talk about suicide we don't shy away from these sort of things on the podcast before we do talk about it though um i'd like anyone listening to sort of realize that we are going to now be talking about suicide. So if this is something that you think might trigger you or you're uncomfortable to listen to, um, it might be wise to stop listening now. Some of the things we've talked about in terms of suicide before has been, um, you know, the, the terrible numbers mm -hmm. of men who are killing themselves at the moment. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of discussed before about why this might be. Do you have any sort of thoughts on it? I don't have a... A particular, like, I can't speak more generally than myself. For me, my suicidal ideation is, again, very much bound up in the same kind of mental loop that I described with the binge eating, um, which is it's a self-destructive impulse. And you kind of, like, you worry about, I, wor I, I sometimes worry about my ability to control that impulse. Like, if I can't, sometimes I'm like, if I can't stop myself from eating that, like, why would I be able to stop myself from, from doing something else? Mm. Um, the... And it is a self-destructive impulse. Uh, um, I think there is there's clearly like there are kind of like sky high sort of rates of depression and anxiety. And I think a lot of like there are various different conditions that are contributing to that. The economy is contributing to it. You know, I think social media has got a, a, a is, is playing a part as well. Suicide is one of those things which can be contagious. Like so there was a, if you, you guys saw it, there was a big big fight over the netflix show 13 reasons why yeah um which has been called to task for being quite irresponsible in the way that it it sort of portrayed suicide it's basically it's essentially a how-to of not to do it i think that the increasing amount to which we're interconnected and the increasing amount to which you can find information about this kind of thing online like the way you can look up information that you might need is is, is possibly also playing a part it's for me, I mean, I wrote a, a piece about suicidal, suicidal ideation about a year and a half ago. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was that prompted me to write it. But what I said in it, and I, th I think this is still think this is true, is that suicidal ideation runs a gamut, right? From like ideation through uh, inclination to intention. Mm -hmm. um, and most of what I have is just ideation, right? I just picture myself killing myself a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and then sometimes like that kind of urge kind of tips forward to more like inclination, but I very, I've never gotten to like intention yet. And I think one of the things is that we're not, we don't, we don't have enough of a, um, 
like a granular language to describe it. Yeah. So that when people talk about like, have you had suicidal thoughts, right? Like that's immediate, like slam, like the kind of like red button, yeah. like, uh, like remove all sharp objects, you know, like we're in that territory now. And, and the truth is that very large numbers of people are killing themselves, but even like vaster numbers uh, are thinking about it. Um, and that on the one hand, like it's terrible that people are feeling that bad that they're constantly thinking about killing themselves. But on the other hand, or like a lot of them are thinking about killing themselves, but on the other hand, it's important for the people who were in that position, like I was, to realize that the fact that you're thinking about it doesn't immediately inevitably mean you're going to do it. Mm. The the ratio between the number of people who are thinking about it and the number of people who 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 do attempt it, um, like the size of that ratio means that um like there's there is another ending to that story yeah. <laughs> that isn't that isn't kind of the the ultimate one. Um and again that comes back to what I was saying about um there being an up to follow the down and you and it being hard to remember that and it being good to kind of take steps to make sure that you can remind yourself of it. Um I do think I, it is very widespread when we think about suicide we're simultaneously for me or I'm simultaneously engaging in a fantasy of violence against somebody I hate and also a fantasy of protection against somebody I care about because it's also that kind of relief thing right like that idea that this one can all stop right so you have this kind of ultimate power of yourself and also like the media has something to kind of answer for there as well because you kind of like have everything from Shakespeare's um, teenage double suicide blockbuster Romeo and Juliet all the way up to like Thelma and Louise where they're like let's not stop let's keep going and the music will swell and it'll be tragic but amazing and the way we've kind of exerted like control over ourselves and the only way that we can I mean it's like that's not suicide isn't heroic it's not epic it's not romantic it's just dying mm. right it's just another way to die of a disease there's lots of ways to die of a disease and suicide's one of them I'm really glad you raised the point as well that the fact that a lot of people do just think about it without any sort of intention because you're absolutely right I think when people hear the word suicide they do immediately think oh, you know someone's having suicidal thoughts instantly let's get them to a mental health unit which some people should be going to a mental health unit at that point but I think that equally there's people will have had those sort of thoughts almost sort of on a kind of casual basis, you know, you're getting on with your work or whatever, and you might think that. Um, but it doesn't, like you say, it doesn't actually mean you have any plans to do anything. I think this is one of those things where um, kind of the right intentions can really get in the way. So you're right, like, I think often little times will start off well with that kind of idle, like ideation without intention. But because the baggage that's attached to or people feel like it's attached to like in the media and stuff like that that's attached to confessing that that's what you're thinking about mm -hmm. uh is so extreme and people are worried i mean i know i was worried before i started talking to my therapist about it that she was immediately going to call my gp and then i was going to find myself like kind of committed on like sections i um and that probably held me off talking about it for about a month Right. Like I was already in therapy, but I didn't raise the fact that I was thinking about killing myself um, for like a month because I was scared of what the consequences would be. Mm. And then in all that time. Right. Like because you're not talking about it, it incubates <laughs> and yeah. it gets worse. And actually, ironically, I think it gets you closer to the situation where you might actually need to be 
or potentially kind of need to be referred. So um, I think if we could just broaden out and recognize like the range of severity and the range of, and they're all serious, right? They're all like deserving of attention. Oh, absolutely. Like one of the things that drives me absolutely fucking nuts um, is when people like say, like talk about like someone who tried, like maybe attempted suicide and they say, oh, they just did it for attention. I'm like, well, maybe the fact that they like actually tried to end their life for some attention means they really fucking need some attention. Do you know mm. what I mean? I'm like, um, people do die from lack of attention, right? Like people die from loneliness. But yeah, so I, I do think if we could just broaden out our understanding of the range of, of severity and uh, and kind of grapple that, that would help to people to uh, to talk about it earlier and be able to get by with less intrusive interventions. Mm. And then because that then becomes the accepted response to it, that makes it less scary, which makes it easier for kind of like a positive cycle to develop. That would mm. be my guess. Going back to the book. Yes. As someone who's experienced mental health issues, mm -hmm. what's it like for you actually, do you have to sort of lock yourself away in a room to sit down and write a book? And do you find that challenging to your own mental health? I find publication much more stressful than writing. Um, although I find writing under deadline much more stressful than how I wrote this book, which is... I wrote this book with no contract, no deadline, no nothing. It took me like 14 months to get to a first draft and that was fine. This was like the most delightfully like stress-free like writing experience I've ever had. Mm -hmm. um, I think for anyone who has the kind of kind of control issues that I have, that you will wind up inevitably putting a lot of pressure on yourself to do the thing that you identify as being like the center of your professional identity mm. well. And I, I'm no different, right? Like, so I do put a lot of pressure on myself to to write well. But in, that's one of those weird ways where the I, the fact that a book is such a thing that takes such a long time to write really works for you because it's such a big piece of work that you can't like just kind of sit there and just like screw up your face and just like, poop out an amazing book <laughs> um like you just have to kind of sit down and you just have to work through it and some days you're going to be good and sometimes you're going to be bad and some days you're going to have to cut whole scenes and then you're going to have to go back and and then having been here before because this is my fourth book and also knowing i have like a long time that, that really helps and writing this kind of i think writing this kind of first person kind of voice is also very helpful because once you've got a kind of hook on that character you can kind of inhabit it and then you can just go ahead and uh, poop words out uh, and then fix the meter. Um, but um, I find being published very stressful mm -hmm. um, because there's that kind of um, fruit machine kind of thing on social media where you're like, you know, you're, you're, you're like you're a, you're a journalist. So you've clearly done the refreshing inbox dance. Uh, <laughs> we've all done the refreshing inbox dance of being like, get back to me, get back to me, get back to me. And like, this is like, when you've got a book out, like the entire internet becomes your inbox. And oh, you're right. just like, refresh, refresh, refresh. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? It's very easy to become assessed. So mm -hmm. like, that is a, like another reason why I've written a piece of code into my browser that take, when I try to go to Goodreads, it takes me to like, just the website full of dogs instead. Uh, <laughs> Thanks very much to our guest, Tom Pollock. So usually this is a bit of the podcast where Ellen and I would discuss what we thought about what Tom had said during the uh, the chat, but it's me on my own, <clears throat> so you just get to listen to my musings. I really enjoyed the chat with Tom today. I suppose the thing that really sort of stood out for me, well, it's two things, to be honest. Two things that stood out were the way that he talked so frankly about bulimia in men and 
I mean, I'm sure it's been said before, but the way that a lot of the time eating disorders seem to be seen as just something that happened to women, particularly sort of teenage girls. And they absolutely do happen to women and teenage girls. But I think it's worth remembering that they happen to men as well. And it was really interesting to hear from him about his own take on it and how it's affected his life and also the exercise side of things, which is something I don't think is sort of talked about enough as well. And also um, just some of the incredible things that he was saying about suicide, to be honest, the fact that he was just prepared to kind of be open about that kind of stuff, which I just think is really important. So I'm just really glad that he's come on and been that open. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've been chatting about today, please give the Samaritans a ring. They're on 116123. Thank you very much to our guest, Tom Pollock, and thanks to our producer, Sam Bonham, and to Lucy Baker for her jingles. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.